Hey, fellow students, if you could turn to Acts 6, we're going to try and get the chapter done today. Uh, I was talking with Kathy earlier, and I said, how are you? And she said, it's well with my soul. That's really what counts, because the rest of it's falling apart, right? I mean, that's life. By the way, if someone says, how's it going? It doesn't mean your circumstances are wonderful. It probably means they're not, because if you look in the mirror, most of our circumstances are challenged. Amen? <laughs> right? I mean, you don't have to look very far before you see things falling apart in your life. I don't know anyone that's not struggling to stay on top of the water, but it is well with our soul because the Jesus we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's really what counts. So today we want to look at Acts 6 just by way of review. I want to give you a little different kind of perspective by way of review. We know that the first six chapters, the first five chapters of Acts really illustrate the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of multiple sermons. But I want you to look at the, 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 the shift in the church between an internal focus and an external focus. An internal, the church by itself, and an external, the church interacting with the world. If you remember in chapter one, the church is alone. There's 120 people. They're praying in the upper room. They're all by themselves. Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches a great sermon. There's an external focus. 3,000 people come to Christ. At the end of chapter two, the church is seen again eating and praying and praising. It's an internal focus. It's just the family. And then when you get in chapter 3 and 4, you see the church interacting with the world, healing the lame man, preaching, suffering, persecution, etc., etc. The last part of chapter 4, we get an inside view of the church again, and it shows the church praying together and supporting and caring each other. We see the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. So it's an internal focus. It's an internal set of issues. And then in chapter 6, we're going to see the, uh, I mean, the last half of chapter 5, you see the world inter interacting with the church as the apostles are defending themselves before the Sanhedrin. Today, we're actually going to look at both. The first uh, seven verses of chapter 6 are all about internal problems, internal issues within the church family. So they're family matters, right? They're sibling issues in the first part of chapter 6. And the last part of chapter 6 is really the introduction of Stephen and his persecution and sermon in chapter 7. And then ultimately we get in chapter 8, we'll see his martyrdom at the end of chapter 7. So let's dive into chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint, murmuring, grumbling, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, one of the things you, you all know, wherever there are people, there are problems. Amen? Christians are not exempt from people problems. The church is growing, and there's lots of brand new Christians in the church. You know what brand new Christian babies do? They dirty their spiritual diapers, right? <laughs> they do. And people, sometimes Christians of 30 and 40 years, still dirty their diapers. You think they should be out of diapers, but sometimes we go back there and go over it again, right? So Satan is paying attention here, and Satan uses both external persecution and internal dissension to try and conquer the church. Now, you'll notice the first seven verses of this chapter, it's not an external conflict. It's not an external persecution. It's an internal family feud. Internal feuds destroy more churches than external persecution. Internal feuds destroy more families 
Most people don't get divorced because of external stuff. If we get divorced, we get divorced based on internal stuff. It's our own stuff, right? What happens is the energy of the church gets turned inward. They forget their mission. And the same thing is true in business. I've talked to more business partners and they get arguing with each other about who's large and in charge and who's the CEO and who's the president and titles, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty soon you forget to take care of the customers. You know, if you don't take care of the customers, what happens? You go out of business. Churches do the same things. We get arguing about the color of the carpet or the kind of music, and pretty soon we forget about the world and the lost and our mission, and within uh, three or four years, you're dying on the vine and the church goes out of business. So it's not that you shouldn't deal with internal issues. It's how you do that, and we're going to talk about that. Now, the issue here at Jerusalem is very simple. There's two really Backgrounds. There's two types of Jews in this Jerusalem church. The first group is the native Hebrew Jews. They were born and raised inside Israel, right? I, I have friends in Texas, and some native Texans have bumper stickers that read, Native Texan. Some Texans have bumper stickers that read, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> this second group are Hellenistic Jews. They're not native Jews, they're Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, and they were born and raised outside Israel. There's a lot of Greek-speaking nations around Israel, and these Hellenistic Jews are Jews. They're practicing the Jewish faith, but they speak Greek and they were born in another nation. And many of them came back to Jerusalem to be near the temple during their final days because that's where they thought God dwelled on earth. So you've got Hebrew Jews that speak Aramaic, which is the, the lingua fraqua, it's the, it's the vernacular of the day. We call it Oki in California or in Bakersfield, right? You speak Oki, that's the, that's the language, right? Have you noticed there's a difference between English and American? Same kind of a thing. So these folks are speaking Hebrew, the native folks are speaking Hebrew. The Hellenistic Jews that were born outside of Israel, they're bilingual. They all speak Greek, and they also speak the native tongue of the land that they grew up in at that point in time. So the native Jews who were born in Israel take the Mosaic law really, really seriously. I mean, they're very strict about the interpretation. The Hellenistic Jews that were born in other countries that come back to Jerusalem, they're a lot more liberal. So you've got two different groups with vastly different cultures, different languages. As a matter of fact, these groups have different synagogues in Jerusalem. They worship differently, so they attend different synagogues. Now here's the challenge. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? You've got us versus them. Yes, they share the Jewish faith. Yes, they share the, the common locality. We're in Jerusalem but we take our interpretation differently, we speak different languages, our culture is different, and we're in Christ. We're one in Christ. The Jewish community has a long tradition of assisting the needy. If you go back to the law of Moses, there was mandates in the law of Moses to do regular collections on a regular basis to care for the needy. The local Jewish church, the native Hebrews, have a hundred centuries-old tradition of caring for the needy at that point in time. Now, the number of needy have increased dramatically because remember, at the Feast of Pentecost, a lot of these non-native Hellenistic Jews came to Jerusalem for the feast, got saved. 
decided to stay in Jerusalem. Where are you going to find out about Jesus? You can't go back home. It's not there. The only church on the planet is in one spot. It's in Jerusalem. So they all stayed. Well, they don't have any means of support. So we read in Acts 2 that the church is selling property and really doing a very generous love offering on a regular basis to take care of these people. And the widows of the Hellenistic Jews apparently have been overlooked in the process. So there's a grumbling, there's a complaint that says, you guys are taking very good care of the Hebrew widows, but you're not taking very good care of the Greek-speaking widows and those in need in the terms of your financial giving and support for them. Now, I don't know that this was intentional. It probably certainly was not intentional, but it could have come across because of language barriers. It could have come across because of geographical barriers. I mean, they might have lived in the burbs, right? Well, guess what? There was no internet back then. There was no cell phone. There was no meals on wheels, right? If you were going to get food, you had to W-A-L-K. Y'all know what that is? <laughs> right? You have these things on your feet that's supposed to support W-A-L-K, right? We don't do a lot of that today. I see people that'll drive around the corner to go to the store, I, I, literally. So the Hebrew widows are being served and the Hellenistic widows are unintentionally being neglected. We have a problem, right? Verse 2. What are we going to do? And the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples. That means the church family. They brought them all together and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Here's the principle. Know God's priorities for your life. Do not let urgent problems distract you from eternal priorities. Know God's priorities for your life. That means you're going to need to talk with God, right? Do you think God has a set of priorities for your life? You're breathing because he's got a set of priorities for your life. When your work is done, you are out of here. So if you're still breathing, you have work yet to do. So he's got a set of priorities. So here's the rule number one for fixing problems. Face the problem. Face the problem. It's impossible to fix what you will not face. That's why we have mirrors. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but anyway. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go there any further. So the apostles called the entire congregation and they put the problem on the table. I want you to notice that the apostles and this congregation are very transparent. They said, we got a problem, right? Here's what the problem is. They didn't deny the problem existed. They didn't blame someone else for the problem. Both of those are things that happen to people when we have problems. Number one, we say, it's not my problem. Of course, that's not very useful. Saying it's not my problem doesn't help fix the problem. So the apostles said, hey, we have a problem. We have a problem. But the other extreme is you don't see the apostles assuming that they're the only ones who are smart enough to fix the problem. Have you seen that happen? The two extremes? Some people say to everything, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. Yeah, don't get involved. The other extreme, you know people, they think they're the only ones that are smart enough to fix any problem. Right? It's called the God complex, right? I can fix anything and only I can fix anything. So that we call those people control freaks, right? They have to control everything. Have you ever noticed that control freaks are not as effective as they think they are? <laughs> they think they're in control of things they're not in control of. The other challenge is control freaks will cripple an organization. 
because everybody get, learns to depend on one person doing it all. Better have 10 people doing jobs than one person trying to do the work of 10. So the apostles are very transparent about this problem. They don't deny the problem exists. They don't blame someone else for the problem. They don't assume they can only solve the problem. They put the problem on the table. Do you know what the easy solution for this problem would be? The logical solution for this problem would be just split the church. Huh? You guys speak Aramaic? You guys speak Greek? Why don't we just have two churches? Why would we have one church? We have different language, different customs, different history. Let's just have two churches. They didn't do that. You know why they didn't do that? Because they believed that Jesus Christ was bigger than their differences. They believed that Jesus Christ was bigger than their differences. Sometime this week, you're going to run into relationships with someone in your life and you are going to have to decide whether Jesus Christ is bigger than your differences with those people. And some of them are your relatives, right? Some of them are your coworkers. Some of them are your friends. Some of them are even your spouses, right? Because we inherently are selfish people and there are differences between us. Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is able to bridge those differences? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is able to bring us together with people for whom we are very, very different? Jesus is stronger than anything that divides us, but that is an act of faith and it's an act of obedience and the apostles did not take the easy way out and split the sheets. They said, we believe that we are one in Christ and we are going to solve the problem based on that. Now the apostles are very clear about their limitations and about their priorities. No one can do it all. And they said to the, the congregation, what did they tell the uh, congregation their, their priorities were? It was to study the word of God, teach the word of God, and what was the other one? Pray. I was talking to Becky earlier this morning. Have you ever noticed that praying is some of the hardest work you can ever do? How many of you struggle with prayer? You know, I don't, the rest of you don't pray at all. <laughs> That I believe. That's not a hard to believe. <laughs> I was talking to Becky and I said, when I try and pray, I become afflicted with ADD. I mean, I have no problem staying focused, but when I begin to pray, I mean, my brain can go hither and yon and I'm, I'm in the, so when I pray out loud and I stop talking to God, I know my brain took a vacation. I, I'm sure the Lord is very, uh, you know, I, I would not be a good friend because I can't stay focused, right, in praying. Praying is very hard work, especially if you want to stay with it. And the disciples are saying, we know that preaching and teaching the word of God, studying and teaching is a priority, and prayer is a priority, and that's what we're called to do. That's what we need to do. That's the foundation of everything else, not just for leaders, for everyone. Here's a thought for you. If you're not studying God's word and you're not praying daily, you are telling God that you are smart enough and strong enough to live life without his help. Really? How's it working for you? That'll be a good way to run out of gas really quick. 
Study God's word and prayer. The disciples knew they needed to do that every day. Satan will always try and distract us away from God's priorities. So the solution is to know what God called you to do and stay with it. Pastor Rogers has been studying God's word 15 to 20 hours a week, every week for 40 plus years. And you say, well, he's gifted. No, he is gifted, but he's diligent. He's diligent. You do something 20 hours a week for 40 years, you develop some skills. Now, Roger would be the first one to say, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. Yes, God blesses, but you have to sweat. You have to put the time in. There's no way you're going to develop a skill or build a muscle without putting the sweat in. So the goal here is keep main thing the main thing. Put first things first. And the apostles involved the whole congregation in this solution, verse 3. But select among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, that we may put them in charge of this task. Here's the principle. <clears throat> the people most impacted by the problem should be involved in solving the problem. And I probably should have said the people most impacted by the problem should be most involved in solving the problem. Right? It's a good lesson in delegation. Those with the greatest stake in the problem should be tasked with a solution. Now, this was not a blank check. The apostles were still responsible for everything that happened, but they trusted the wisdom of the congregation. The congregation had the job of nominating from among themselves men who could handle this task. Now, notice that the job was given to family members. The job was not given to outsiders at this point in time. Also notice that the qualification for the job was not a skill set. What was it? Yeah, it was a character set. It said you have to have character to be able to do this job, not a skills. They had to be spiritually mature. They had to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. They had to be wise, and they had to be, have a track record. They had to be known. They had to have a track record within the body. People of good reputation means that they've been around for a while, and people know that they're a solid quantity. Now, the actual tasks of this job, they probably were organizing food distribution, financial distribution, meal distribution for needy people in the congregation at that point in time. Now, if they're handling money, would you assume they needed to be people of integrity? Yes, broad integrity, and that's why that was one of the job descriptions. So the apostle said, you all take responsibility for that, and verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's a primary call of every teaching pastor is to spend time, lots of time, in study and prayer. It's hard work, it takes time, and I want you to know the leadership team at Valley Baptist Church is committed to the word and to the prayer, and that's why you get nutritious meals at this church family. Verse 5. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephan, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, clearly there's a congregational unity in this decision. It says it found approval with the whole congregation. The congregation had the difficult job of choosing how many men? There were probably 20,000 believers in the church at this point. And you had to choose how many? That's a pretty high bar, right? We've got to find seven out of 20,000 to do this job description. That's pretty high standards at that point in time. And they did choose seven. And what's unique about every one of these seven names? They're all Greek names, which means they all come from which congregation? 
the Hellenistic congregation. The problem impacts the Hellenistic group and the solution comes from the Hellenistic group. That's essential. People from the same group would probably have the best ability to understand and meet the needs of that group, correct? Solutions imposed from the outside by people who are unaffected by the problem seldom work. And in our great country, we need to go back to a basic principle. Local problems are generally best solved with local solutions. But you know why we don't do that very much anymore? Because we have way too many people who want somebody else to solve their problem. Folks, the Hellenistic group didn't come and say, you fix the problem, you native Hebrews. They said, we have a problem. The apostle says, we agree there's a problem. We're not the solution to that problem because we already have a job description from God. You choose seven folks out of your own number who understand the problem and they can oversee the solution. And the entire congregation said, let's go for it. That's how you solve a problem, right? The people with the most stake in the problem have the most stake in the solution. Verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Laying hands on someone means you're really blessing them, you're affirming them. It's really a commission for a job description. It says, we affirm that this is what God's called you to do. It's really a sharing in the work and identification. It means that the apostles not only approved the work, they supported the work, they took ownership of what this group was doing as part of a family solution. And what it really means is they trusted family members to do the right thing in the body. And that's really what it's all about. This is a family under the authority of God, trusting Jesus to be bigger than their problem, trusting Jesus to be bigger than their division, and it says they prayed for them. Folks, pray for your pastors every day. Pray for people in ministry. It's a battle. It's a serious battle. Prayer is the hardest work you'll ever do and it's also the most profitable work you can do. So get on your face, get on your knees and pray. One of the things you will notice the disciples all the time doing is they're having prayer meetings. Do you think there's a reason they have so much power in the first century? I would suspect they prayed a whole lot more than we do. I mean, they weren't dependent on some sort of technological solution they said holy spirit if you don't make this happen it's not going to happen they had nowhere else to go they went to the lord and it happened i know that some of us and some of you in this room are facing problems that only jesus is the solution for there is no other solution because i know you've tried them and tried them and tried them and I think many times the Lord says, come to me, come to me, trust me. I will handle it in my time, in my way, for my glory, I will handle it. I understand your brokenness. I understand the division. I understand the broken relationships. I'm God. I love you. I will handle it. Trust me. Now, when you look at this program, it appeared to be very successful when you look at verse 7. It's one of these summary statements that Luke throws in there. He says, and the word of God did what? Kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to decrease. Is that what it says? It says it continued to increase. What's the word after increase? 
greatly, increase greatly. There's explosion of evangelism going on here. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now the word spreading here is the number of disciples is growing because the apostles are doing what God told them to do, preach and pray, and the body is doing what they're supposed to be doing as well, fulfilling their job description. When everybody does their job description, amazing things happen, right? It says disciple. The word disciple means learner. The word disciple means student. Jesus calls us disciples because we're supposed to be learners. We're supposed to be students, right? If someone asked you, what has Jesus taught you in the last week? What would you say? Well, Brad, we haven't really talked a lot in the last week, so I don't know. He might have some lessons for me, but my hearing aid's not on right now. Okay, I get that. He does have lessons for us. We are to be students. We are to be learners. And one of the things I love about manna is, by and large, this is a class of students. And I am the chief student. I'm the most responsible one to study. I'm the most accountable one, I guess I should say. Here, you have accountabilities elsewhere, and that's why you're a student, so you can fulfill the ministry Jesus Christ has given you. So the church had filled Jerusalem with the gospel. The Sanhedrin basically said, you filled this world, this city with the gospel. There's disciples everywhere. And what's the next step? What did Jesus say? I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria. These were surrounding regions. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're ready to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're really ready to go to Judea but they have to add a little organizational structure to facilitate that growth. We just saw that. They had to take care of the needy in their own number if they were going to grow. So the church has to be organized to thrive. Let me just give you a little history. When manna started 13 years ago, we had about 10 people in the class. Do you know how much structure we had? Zero. We didn't need very much. We needed a room and a podium and a Bible. That was structure, right? Simple organisms require simple structure. Now our manna family has grown. We require a lot more structure. There's a lot of structure. Rob does audio video. Marty's our MC. Marty teaches. Alan Sherry Thomas hosts a, a weekly prayer meeting. Crystal, Joy, DJ, Sunny, other folks do administration, attendance. Every one of you signs up to bring snacks, right? We have care group leaders who call and help meet the needs of the church family. We have a fellowship group that organizes our social times, Tracy, Jill, Crystal, other folks on that. Christina decorates for our parties. Lisa emails the weekly lesson summer every Monday morning. Kay emails generally, and Crystal and maybe some other folks, the weekly prayer requests. Every Monday morning they go out. Tom facilitates prayer requests and praise. And all of you do what? You pray every single week. Probably the most important thing that goes on in this class is your prayer. When everyone's doing their job, it's amazing what happens. See, structure is not the enemy of growth. Structure is essential for growth because the more complex the organization, the more complex the structure has to be to support that, right? Now, they've met the internal needs of this group. I want you to notice that they meet both the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs. The apostles said, well, our job is to pray and to teach the congregation helped feed the poor, correct the injustices. So the church is proclaiming the words of Jesus and they're also practicing the works of Jesus. They're both doing both works and words. 
Sermons have to be accompanied by service. It's not just what you talk, it's how you walk. We must not only teach the needy, we have to touch the needy, right? That's part of the turf. Jesus did that. Jesus fed their physical hunger and he fed their spiritual hunger as well. Here's the principle. And I'm going to quote Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India. Amy Carmichael went to India in the latter part of the 19th century, died in 1951. She was 56 years on the mission field without a furlough. And she was vastly involved in helping widows and orphans and, I mean, a lot of physical needs. And she was highly criticized by missionary communities because they said, you're supposed to be only about their spiritual needs and always about their spiritual needs and stop wasting your time on this physical stuff. And Amy Carmichael said, well, souls are more or less firmly attached to bodies. That's her quote. Therefore... I've added, Christians are called to care for the whole person, body, and soul. The book of James says, what good does it do if you tell a brother or sister in need, go be warmed and be filled, and here's the gospel, and they go away hungry? Have you really loved them? No, I think you don't want to get your hands dirty. That's what I think. Touching is involvement. Teaching is real simple. Touching means you actually have to go and be with them. Right? Just like someone came and was with us. So we need to care for the whole person, body, and soul. And this church is doing that. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, Faith without works is dead. Right? So the church is walking its talk. It's caring for the physical and spiritual needs. So much so that many Jewish priests are becoming obedient to the faith. Now, there's about 8,000 priests in Jerusalem that are associated with temple worship. Not a small number. And it says a considerable number of them were being one. That means that they are not only observing the words that the church is teaching, they're not only looking at the Old Testament to see that, yes, the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament and Jesus is the Messiah, they are looking at the hands-on love of the brethren. Jesus said, they will know you are Christians because of your eloquence. Is that what he said? He said, they'll know you're a Christians by your... And you know something? Love is far more than words. Love is touch. Love is going and being with and meeting physical and spiritual and emotional and family. It's loving the whole person. That's what we're called to do. That's what communicates the gospel. Far more people are won by that than are won by our logic or our eloquence, right? All right. Luke is now going to change channels here a bit on verse 8, and he's going to introduce us to one of the Greek men who are selected to care for the Greek-speaking widows, a man named Stephen. Verse 8. This would be pretty nice on your epitaph. You can put this on your gravestone. And Stephen, full of grace and power. Boy. That'd be pretty good on the granite, right? Was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen, Stephen was not an apostle, but he performed miracles. He was a new Christian, a brand new Christian, probably only a couple months old. But when you read chapter 7, one of the great sermons in the New Testament, this guy had a prodigious grasp of the Old Testament. I mean, he knew it. He was a servant. He waited tables, handled finances, but he was a great preacher who became the church's first martyr. You know, what's so interesting to me is God modifies our plans. Have you noticed that God modifies your plans? 
yes, and he doesn't ask your permission. And he doesn't say, by the way, can I get into your calendar? I got a couple changes coming up. He just invades your life and changes your plans. The church thought Stephen's job was what? Handle the finances, wait tables, etc. God says, I'm going to use this guy as an evangelist. I'm going, to, I'm going to give him the ability to do miracles. I'm going to use him to preach and teach. You thought he was just going to wait tables. <laughs> nope. Got a different job description than what you thought. So God changes and expands the role beyond what we thought he was going to do. The name Stephan or Stephanos means the victor's crown. The victor's crown. If you carry the name Stephen, you've been told you're a victor. The victor's crown has to be earned. It was given in the Olympic Games. You won it because you paid the price to earn it. Stephan here is going to be granted the victor's crown by his martyrdom. Now, the other word for crown is diadema. Diadem, that's a royal crown. You inherit the royal crown because you're adopted into the family of God. You earn the Stephan crown. You pay for that. And he paid in blood. He lived up to his name. John MacArthur calls Stephen the bridge between Peter and Paul. He was chosen by Peter and the apostles, and he was martyred at the hands of Paul. It was Stephen's martyrdom that really launched the whole persecution against the church. We're going to get to that next week, Lord willing. Jesus had told the disciples that they were to be witnesses where? Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. Where were they now? Jerusalem. Had any of them left? No. He had told them, you're supposed to minister around the world. You know how he got them to leave? Persecution. Pain will cause you to move. Have you noticed? Right? We try and move away from pain. So God in his infinite plan used the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephan to move the church. He scattered them like salt out of a salt shaker. And whenever they fled Jerusalem, what did they take with them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Now I want you to notice something about Stephen. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> Chapter 6, verse 3. Stephen is always described as being full. He's always described as being full, which is intriguing to me. In verse 3, he's described as being full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Go to verse 5. Stephen is described as being full of faith. Go to verse 8. Stephen is, is described as being full of Grace and full of, wow, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, and full of power. Here's the principle. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. My first right was, what are you full of? I knew you'd laugh. Don't you find it interesting that when we describe people as being full of something, it's almost never complimentary. We say they're full of baloney, or full of malarkey, or they're full of themselves, right? When's the last time you heard someone describe a friend saying, this person is full of grace? This person is full of wisdom. We don't 
even think about using that word. Most of the time when we describe people as being full of something, it's not pleasant, kind, it's usually odiferous. So whatever fills you is what controls you. Whatever fills you is what dominates you. Here's a question. Do you want to know what you're full of? Whatever fills you will spill out of you when life bumps into you. Whatever, write it down. You're going to live it this week. I promise you. Life is going to bump into you this week. Whatever fills you will spill out of you when life bumps into you. Whatever fills you will spill out of you when life bumps into you. Here's the point. You choose whatever fills you. Your choice. You choose. Whatever you surrender to fills you. Whatever you spend most of your time doing is filling you. Whoever you spend most of your time with is filling you. Right? If you watch television six hours a day, it's filling you. If you spend eight hours a day on the internet, it's filling you. You choose what fills you. And you say, well, I don't like that. Tough. It's true. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you should spend more time with them. If you're full of baloney, you're probably spending too much time around cows and pigs. Right? If you're full of yourself, you're spending way too much time thinking about me. Right? Stephen was filled. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit came faith and wisdom and grace and power and all those other things. Right? He was filled with God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Do you know what, how we know what Stephen was filled with? You don't even have to accept Luke's definition. What came out of him when he was stoned to death? Gospel, grace, wisdom, forgiveness. I probably would have been called not lightning strikes on those people. I'd probably be saying, Lord, those 12 legions of angels that you didn't use at the cross, I could use them right now. Take these people out of here, baby. He prayed for them exactly like his master Jesus did. Asked for forgiveness. We know what he was filled with because when life squeezed him, we know what came out of him. You know what you're full of because when life squeezes you, it comes out of you. I am routinely humiliated by what comes out of me when you squeeze me. Routinely, the Lord says, Brad, what's in there? I need some change. I need to do some changing in your life. So God is going to grant Stephen the power to do miracles. And many people are coming to faith as a result of his ministry. But wherever there's spiritual growth, there's going to be spiritual opposition. Verse 9. But some men from what are called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And verse 10, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, at this point in time, Jerusalem has about 390 synagogues, almost 400. The synagogues of the freedmen were probably started by Jews that had been captured by the Roman general Pompey in AD 63. They had been taken to Rome as prisoners, as sold as slaves. Many of them had found their freedom over the subsequent generations and now had come back to Jerusalem. And they had started their own synagogue, the freedmen, people who'd been slaves, and been made free, and they came essentially from three areas. 
Cyrene and Alexandria are cities in North Africa. Alexandria is in Egypt, Cyrene is in Libya. Asia was modern-day Western Turkey, and Cilicia is right by uh, Damascus, the Syrian area, and it contained the city of Tarsus, which was the birthplace of Paul, Saul. It's intriguing to me. I can't find it. It's very possible, but it's not recorded, that Saul may have been one of those who debated with Stephen. I would have loved to hear that. Boy, you talk about hot. That would have been hot. This was a Greek-speaking synagogue. It was filled with Hellenistic Jews, and this was Stephen's mission field because these were his people. And this guy has courage coming out of his eyes. He is a man of faith, and that faith believes God even though he knew it was going to result in his death. He goes into the synagogue to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. And the debate was probably over the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, salvation by grace, salvation by law. Jesus is the Messiah. And it says they argue with him, and verse 10 tells him they couldn't cope with the wisdom. Who what was he filled with? The Holy Spirit, of course. Jesus had said, when you come on trial, when you're standing before men, I will give you words that no one can cope with. We got it right here. He's filled with the Spirit, and what comes out of him? Wisdom and the Spirit which he's speaking. So they can't shut up Stephen with logic. They're going to try and shut him up with lying. You know, when you're losing the argument, attack the person. That's exactly what they do, verse 11. They secretly induce men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Who does this remind you of? Have we seen this before? Yeah, th th this, this, is, this has happened to Jesus four, five, six months before, right? It's exactly like they treated Jesus. They had failed miserably when they tried to debate Jesus, so they secretly hired false witnesses to stir up a mob, accuse him of sin. They get a mob going, accuse him of, of being against Moses in the temple, and they execute him. This is a recipe, and they're just executing the recipe. Anyone teaching that Jesus was God, anyone teaching that the temple was not forever, anyone teaching the law of Moses could not save was worthy of killing. It was blasphemy. Blasphemy is taking that which is sacred and making it non-sacred. So Stephen's in the middle of a debate. It says they interrupt him, they arrest him, they drag him before the council of Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court, 70 men of Israel plus the high priest of 71. Verse 13 says they put forward what? False witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that the Nazarene, underline that, the Nazarene, that's an epitaph. That's like saying, that liar's from Oldale. He's just an oater. It's exactly what they're saying. It's an epitaph. The Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So Stephen's on trial in front of their Supreme Court, right? All trials must have witnesses, and they've got witnesses. They've got witnesses who are willing to lie for payment, and they paid these folks to lie. What they're doing is falsely portraying Stephen as a terrorist. You know what they're saying? 
This Nazarene named Jesus that Stephen follows, he said he would destroy this temple, change our traditions, overthrow the Mosaic law. Man, it's downright un-American. Right? Exactly what they're saying. Jesus never said he would personally destroy the temple. He said the temple's going to be destroyed. You know something? We're talking so six, eight months after Jesus ascended, A.D. 33, 34. By A.D. 70, Titus Vespasian came with the second, third, and twelfth legions and leveled the city, burned it to the ground. So it was destroyed. Romans destroyed it in A.D. 70. The truth is, is that the Jewish leadership valued their own traditions more than God's word. They valued Mosaic law more than the word of God. They were saying, like many churches, we've always done it this way, and we are not going to change, period. I've seen churches do that. You know what happens? They shrink into nothing. Now, we're not talking about the word of God. The message of the gospel never, ever, ever changes. It's eternal. But the methods that we use, the music that we use, the buildings that we use, the dress, the style, that changes with the times, right? You don't get hung up on methods. You get hung up on the truth. You always stay with the truth. These folks were willing to sacrifice the truth for their traditions. They had stopped worshiping God. They were worshiping their tradition, their customs, their temple. You know what really motivated this group? Jealousy. Jealousy. Stephen was doing miracles. Their own priests were forsaking them and following Jesus. And we know that Jesus was crucified, among other things, for jealousy because his crowds were bigger than their crowds. So they killed him. The crowds were leaving the Jewish leadership now, following Jesus. Their power base was evaporating, and they were furious about it, so they put him on trial. Verse 15. Fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. What's unique about this is they are accusing Stephen of being against who? Moses. You're evil. You're against Moses. And yet his face shines with heaven's light like an angel. Angels reflect the glory of God in light. Only one time in human history had God ever placed a portion of his glory on a human face. Only one time. And it was Moses. In Exodus 34, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai getting the law the second time. Right? The second time he went up. 40 days, 40 nights. Didn't eat, didn't drink. He was in God's very presence. And when he came down from the mountaintop, it said his face shone with the glory of God. And Israel was so terrified they wouldn't come close to him. So he had to put a veil over his face so they'd come close to talk. Only time in history that that had occurred. Here's the principle. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more like him you will become. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more like him you will become. The contrast here is really, really stark. The Jews are enraged, they're out of control, they're filled with hate, and Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? He's peaceful. The purity of this guy's life is amazing. He's got the mark of divine favor on his face. His face radiates glory. How would you respond if someone all of a sudden lit up like the sun 
with the glory of God in their face? Would you say, wow, this has never happened before. Maybe he's got the mark of God's favor. Maybe he's speaking God's truth. It's obviously God's giving us a signal here that this person is speaking. How can Moses Stephen be against Moses when he looks exactly like Moses looked? As a matter of fact, if you will go to chapter 7, Acts 7, way to the end, jump to verse 55, 55, Acts 7:55. I'm going to start reading at 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Out of control, anger, going to kill him, which is going to happen in a few verses. Verse 55, but Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, once again, he's always portrayed as full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven, which means God opened his eyes to see heaven. And what did he see? The glory of God, just like Moses. As a matter of fact, Moses just saw part of the glory. He saw the back of God, but he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's got glory on his face. He says he sees God, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God. And verse 57, what do they do? They cry out with a loud voice and cover their ears. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Right? Right? Cover their ears and they rush down him with one impulse. These are people, as Andrew talked about this morning, who don't fail to believe due to evidence they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1. They don't want to see the evidence. They don't want to believe. In spite of not just what he said, in spite of the fact that he's obviously living the life, in spite of the miracles, in spite of the signs, in spite of the glory on his face, they say no. And they kill him. It's a phenomenal rebuke from Almighty God to the Jewish leadership. When the man they kill looks like the man they say they follow. Moses, right? So what do we learn? First part of this chapter is the church solving an internal problem. And they solved an internal problem in a godly fashion which resulted in unity in the church. It didn't result in a church split. It resulted in the church becoming one even more, tighter, trusting, loving each other. Secondly, we see how the church interacts with the world and the impact it has. So here's our review. Verse 2 and verse 4 talk about God's priorities for your life. Know God's priorities for your life. Do not let urgent problems distract you from eternal priorities. Verses 1, 3, and 5 talk about the principle. The people most impacted by the problem should be most involved in solving the problem. The whole first part of chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, since souls are more or less firmly attached to bodies, Christians are called to care for the whole person, body and soul. Verse 5 and verse 15, Stephen is described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Here's the key takeaway question. What are you choosing to be filled with? What are you choosing to be full of? And the last one, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more like him you will become. Okay? 
Next week, Lord willing, um, I'm probably going to do a, a short review of chapter 7 and then we'll get into chapter 8. So the two characters we're transitioning into are Stephen and Philip. And we're going to see the work that the Holy Spirit does through them next week. And your responsibility this week is now that you know, do.